back to the Own Your Potential podcast, where you'll hear stories from leaders across the globe about how they've taken control of their career growth and lessons on how you can too. I'm Peter Sherba, and today I'm extremely excited to be sitting down with Laura Klauser, who's the sports car racing program manager for General Motors. Welcome to the podcast. I'm very excited to have you on. I've been looking forward to this. I'm a big motorsports fan and just being able to explore a career in this space, I think is very cool. And I think you've got a pretty unique journey to touch on. Before we get into the meat of it, why don't you take us through your career journey leading up to today? Sure. Well, I'd say probably the best is to start in college. Uh, I'm a mechanical engineer is where I, I started my education. And then the thing that I did in college that really got me into the motorsports area is I worked on the Formula SAE program at my school, which was Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. And that is a phenomenal program for those who don't know. It is a group of students get together and they design, build, and then compete with a formula style open wheel race car, um, which as a college kid is cool, right? You get to make something. I learned how to weld. I learned how all that fun stuff. And then, you know, you get to see a design process from the very beginning, clean sheet of paper to the end where you're physically using the product. You can't beat that learning in the classroom. Um, And that's, that's what I loved about it. I love the learning. I love just being a part of the automotive industry and being a part of Formula SAE landed me an opportunity to come and work for General Motors, which was so cool. Um, My very first job at GM full-time was a, it's called vehicle definition and balance engineer, which was the, the role was to take big ideas. Like we want a car to be fun to drive and translate that into engineering metrics. So what does fun to drive mean? Well, it means zero to 60 in 2.6 seconds. It means being able to handle three and a half G's, you know, whatever the answer might be uh, so that we had a concept and we could turn that into something that we could design to. Yeah. And actually I was very lucky that the first program I got to work on at GM was the Corvette C7. And back in 2008, that was a very kind of, you know, hush, hush. Nobody knew we were working on it, which yeah. was pretty neat to be a part of the secret circle for that. Um, after doing that for a couple of years, I did uh, design release engineering at GM. That's where you own one of the parts that's on the oh, car cool. or a, a collection of them. I happened to be in suspension. I worked on our midsize product. So people knew the Chevy Malibu, um, yeah. the Buick LaCrosse. Unfortunately, a lot of these cars I think are getting transferred into SUVs for our product lineup, but, um, yeah really need to work on that. Uh, the two most important jobs to make sure you get a car out the door to have a physical car is the design release engineer who takes the, the, you know, design of the part with the supplier, gets it to the plant, you know, in quality and the person who physically puts the part on the car at the plant. Right. So you need those two and and everyone else supports their mission of designing the parts and putting the car together uh, so that it's a good car. Uh, after that, did uh, advance or um, worked out at Milford Proving Grounds as a noise and vibration engineer, worked on any noises that tracked with RPM. So like a driveline um, whirl or an HVAC growl or anything along those lines, some vibration stuff, um, which was really cool because that's where you take all those pieces and parts and you make sure when they're put together in one package, they play nice with each other and you right. have a product you want to be a part of. And pretty much at that point, after eight years in production, I finally got into racing from there at GM, um, which was as simple as there was a posting for a program manager position. And I threw my name in the hat for it, got the opportunity to 
apply to apply interview and ultimately scored the job. So it was, um, it was kind of a classic way to get there. But I think really what stood out when I applied was I still had been staying on board with formula SA volunteering uh. years after graduating. And in that I got a lot of leadership opportunities because I was leading the dynamic events at the competition uh, and then being in that space. So those were all good things to talk about in the interview and then ultimately got me into racing. I started with the ATS VR program, which was Cadillac. We raced that in Pirelli World Challenge, now called SRO. And then that transitioned into our DPI program that was in IMSA. I picked up Camaro along the way and in 2021 got the opportunity to be the sports car racing program manager. So I had Cadillac, Camaro GT4, and the Corvette. Wow. And uh, we've just hit the ground running ever since. We've got two new cars that we're working on. The one just launched at Rolex, the LMDH Cadillac, and then our Corvette yep. GT3 launches early 2024, plus racing the cars that still exist. So it's it's been a whirlwind, but it's been an incredible opportunity. Yeah, I mean, there's so much that I'm excited to touch on here, and not least of which because of the reason that I'm a huge automotive enthusiast. And so when you say iconic nameplates like Camaro, like Corvette, and the fact that you got to participate in not only their engineering, but then their racing, I just get giddy with excitement to talk about it. But I mean, just going all the way back to the beginning of this, I mean, the in general, right? Even today, even though we're approaching more equality of, of of women in STEM fields, and and now also of women in motorsports across different roles as racers, as engineers, in leadership roles, right? Where everything's moving in the right direction. But during your time when you were learning engineering and the just as you were starting off in Formula SAE, that the inequality was probably still quite large, right? There's a big gap between where it should be and probably where it was. So what influences kind of got you interested in that space? Did you have an interest in cars from beforehand or was it just because of the soup to nuts, like engineering through to racing opportunity? Like you essentially got to design from scratch and all the way to like use and activation of a product, right? Forget the fact that it's a race car. That in <laughs> itself is just a very cool experience to, to get that opportunity to see something from inception through to application and improvement, Right. Was it, so what attracted you into that space? What really kind of opened the door at first? I decided that I wanted to work for one of the big three, which is Ford, GM, or Chrysler at the time when yeah. I was about 13 years old. Uh, I grew up on a very small farm in Maryland, um, and we couldn't walk to anything, right? I was out in the rural area. Mm. So the car was such a symbol of freedom and being able right. to go places and do what you wanted to do. And, and I just fell in love with that concept as well as the mechanical aspect of it. All these different pieces and parts come together to create this machine that yeah. is the most complicated thing most people own. I mean, it's it's usually the second most expensive if you purchased a house and then by far the most complicated. Um, and really, I thought that was so cool to be a part of that, to be a part yeah. of car culture, to be able to design and, and work on that. And that's what drove me into engineering. Uh, originally, I wanted to be a mechanic actually, but, you know, I was so good at math and I, I felt like I just wanted to do something more than just work on the cars. I wanted to influence what they were like and the design of them. Yeah. And so I said, OK, instead of mechanic, how about mechanical engineering yeah. and going there? And um, and yeah, I mean, the when I was choosing colleges, I learned about the Formula SA program when I started college visiting. And as soon as I saw like, oh, we can build a car, let alone a race car. 
how cool is that? So that actually is yeah. one of the reasons I chose RPI was I got to meet the team. I saw how that all worked. I love the campus. It all just came together. So I've yeah. been, I've been a car nut from as long as I can remember. And um, yeah, it's just one of those things that once you get into it and you get into that culture, like you fall in love and I just can't imagine working on anything else. Yeah. I mean, it becomes a sickness at a certain point, right? Like it's it's very much an addiction, right? So I I can totally understand that. Now, did you ever get a chance actually to race? Now I'm just curious, right? Or do you get a chance to drive and experience the cars as well that you designed in Formula SAE? I did drive the Formula SAE car once. Um, I, being totally transparent, did not go well. Uh, I think I got a little (laughs) confused with how the shifting worked. We used, you know, just a, a normal almost a motorcycle shifter really in the car. So it was, you know, up or down. That was it. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. And uh, so I, I think, what is it? At one point I came in, I'm like, this, something's not right. And they're like, yeah, you're, you're stuck up in, I don't know, fourth or fifth gear or something. When I should have been in first yeah. or second. Um, but, but that's okay. The other thing that was kind of crazy is um, I, I'm, I'd say I'm pretty tall for a woman. I'm five, eight, but for okay. the formula team I was on, I was actually one of the tallest people uh, we had a couple of the guys, ah. including my now husband, were in the six foot range, but there most of them were on the smaller side. And and with those cars, weight is everything because they're so small to begin with. So a lot of the the smaller guys are the ones that really got in there and and got a lot of seat time and were the good drivers. Um, but I was just as happy to be a part of the program as a driver or not. I do have fun in my personal cars. Um, we take my we have a C six Grand Sport vet that goes out to the track once in a while. Oh, and, very and cool. We, Cool. But yeah, but in terms of doing actual racing, I have not ever done an actual car race in a car, uh, especially one that I yeah. would own because I probably I don't know if I have the stomach for watching my own hardware get banged up that bad. So, <laughs> well, that's the problem, right? Like you as a consumer, you always want your car to be, especially if you like sports cars, to be track capable, to be able to handle that sort of stuff. But then once you actually have it and you understand the damage that you could do to it just by even successfully going around a track, right? Just like the the, the stuff that happens, it's a, which is why, for example, your job as a noise and vibration engineer, make sure everything's screwed together tight, right? And, and works together is so important. But, um, you know, it, it, yeah, it, it really does hit you hard. And um, I've had that experience a couple of times. I'm like, ah, man, I need to either make more money or maybe not do this as much. But um, no, I think that's very cool. And I think the fact that you were able to then later leverage something that you did purely out of passion, right? That clearly had an impact on the direction in which you went from an engineering standpoint, probably, you know, even accelerated your engineering skill set and knowledge while you were in college, I think is is a very cool example of that. Um, Once you then did get into, obviously, your opportunity at GM, and I, I maybe go a little bit further into that initial role and when what you described around, like, for example, when you get like the soft requirement of making a car fun to drive and then having to translate that into engineering specs, that really resonates with me because me as a consultant, right? And like the technology space, I'm strategy. So for example, I take business requirements and I help put them into a vision and then translate to like engineers. What do we actually have to build and what does that mean? Right. And you were doing that, but you're getting much cooler requirements, right? Fun to drive is much easier than, you know, some of the stuff or much, not easier, but much more interesting than necessarily what I'm trying to build. Talk a little bit more about that opportunity and some of the the things that you were doing in that role. When, um, so the vehicle design process at GM, and I'm assuming at most OEs is, is pretty cool to be a part of. And, And on the production side, it can go anywhere from two to four years, typically for what it takes 
And a lot of that depends on, are you starting from complete scratch? Is this a brand new vehicle that we've never done before? Are we doing an iteration? Are we doing a next generation? So it, it just, you know, all that weighs into that. But at the beginning, you need to decide what is this thing that you're making? Um, if it's yeah. a carryover or it's an iteration of something that exists, it's it's easier, but you have to start with the product it's replacing and you have to understand, okay, what did customers like? What did they not like? So that group that I, I started in, we did a lot of customer data mining. We would go through feedback in JD Powers or there's a couple other um, different technologies or uh, different areas we would get that customer data from. And we yeah. would start looking for, you know, what are the trends here in terms of, the experience with the car, what, you know, there's, there's other people, there's a huge quality organization at GM that's looking at any issues that people are having, but this is right. more like, what do they use this car for? Right. What, you know, what attracts them to it? Um, and then if we're creating something new, kind of saying, okay, if this arbitrary thing that we're trying to create it existed, who would our customer be? What would yeah. they be like? What do they want? And then that kind of helps set up what does this thing need to be so that you can then get into, okay, like in the case of the Corvette, obviously the Corvette needs to be fun to drive. That's a known one, but then what does fun to drive mean for this next generation of the car? In the case, it was the C7 we were working on. You know, we couldn't just hit repeat for what we had at C6. We had to find, you know, how has the Corvette customer grown and matured? How have we grown and matured? How does the brand, you know, what do we need to do to make the next generation car better? What does better even mean? So it's it's working through all of that. And and I think it's cool. It was a great opportunity to get a really big holistic view of the car design process versus coming in and and immediately doing like a design release job where you just have one part. Right. That's great because then you can kind of see how your microcosm, you know, impacts the whole vehicle. But by at least for me, getting the bigger picture, I could understand somewhat why we were making decisions that we were making and what we were trying to accomplish. I think it's very cool because I've on uh, on a number of different occasions now on this podcast, I've talked in different industries and very different professions through this concept of generalization versus uh, specialization and when to do which in a career. And so, for example, you know, uh, there are different schools of thought as to whether do you develop a very specialized set of skills right out of the gate and then broaden and generalize as you kind of move up or do you learn as much and as broad as possible and then start to figure out where you specialize and so here you have this opportunity like you said to have that holistic view of the car engineering design process and in the context of a vehicle like the c7 which for anyone who's like understands that okay a corvette's a sports car with a car like that, there's it's a it's a pretty demanding set of requirements from the customer, right? Because not only can does it have to be able to handle like daily use, because it's not like it's a four hundred thousand dollars sports car. This is something that people drive every day. It's got to be like a comfortable cruiser, near luxury kind of like ride quality. But then it has to be able to basically do track work and like drag work, and usually in the hands of people who are like you know, a five out of 10 driver, right? If we're honest, right? The average person. <laughs> so it's like, it's got to be able to withstand that. And so that is a pretty broad set of requirements that most normal cars don't have. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So I have to imagine that seeing that in that context, especially looking back now that it ended up being the last front engine Corvette, that's a pretty special opportunity. I'm sure you reflect on that pretty fondly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I mean, it, it, it was, it, you you get attached. So, I mean, I own a C6 because that was what we were producing when we started working. And, and I couldn't imagine, you know, upgrading at the moment just because yeah. I love that that memory that I have. But yeah, that the C7 was, it, it really was the best front engine Corvette that we were able to make. 
you know, all in. And then of course we got, well, we've kind of hit the limit. Now we got to put the engine in the back and see what we can do there. <laughs> That's, That's right. not the official company line, but it's just, you know, it's kind of as, as you progress, you're like, how can we make this better? Well, we got to shift the pivot point and the mass a little bit and see what yeah. happens. <laughs> Which obviously then was, you know, such an iconic nameplate to have that big of a shift. It certainly lived the, lit the automotive world on fire for the last two or three years uh, since announcement and then seeing it in real life. Um, but from there, right, you obviously worked, as, a, as you said, as a design release engineer, then also noise and vibration engineer. Between those three different roles and then, you know, as well as kind of like progressing forwards, I'm assuming in your career also, you're doing very different jobs. So as an engineer, how do you position yourself, you know, doing, for example, what you're doing initially to then design and release for specific parts to then again, noise and vibration, that's like looking at the entire vehicle working well together. I'm just trying to understand because I'm not that familiar with the engineering space. How do you position yourself for those opportunities in a way where you've got enough skill set that then you can learn and pick up quickly? Like you, There's a lot of selling of self and capability that must happen when you apply for those types of opportunities, right? Yeah. And so one of the benefits of a big company like GM is there are so many different things you can do at GM. Even just in engineering, there's so many different. And then if you want to try something new, we've got marketing, we've got sales, we've got, you know, the finance group, we've got all these other things that support this giant company. We have people that do logistics. I mean, our logistics is just as crazy as UPS and FedEx with how they're moving things around, right? So all these different things that you can imagine. So really what it comes down to is as you're trying to, you know, work your way around the company and figure out what you want to do, you have to sell your attitude and your willingness and your past experiences. And one of the great things about engineering is if you want to very simply describe what engineering is, it's problem solving. That's all it is. So if you are able to solve a problem in one space you should be able to solve a problem in any space. It's all about right. how do you break the problem down into smaller chunks? How do you, you know, prioritize what you need to do working through all of that. And so it, it, it's demonstrating that you can do that. And then realizing that those skills are transferable, even if the widget or the feature or the system that you are now supporting in your new engineering role is completely different problem solving will always be the same. And and then again, the attitude, right? People want to work with people that are, are good to work with and are motivated. They keep their temper under control when they, you know, are, are upset. They're good at, at um, talking with others and making people feel like they're part of the team. So those are all things that you just have to demonstrate and get a good reputation. And then as big as a company GM is, it's also very small. So right. when you're starting to move around, there's a lot of people that have been in the company a long time and have worked with all sorts of other people. So news will travel fast. If you are a good to work with person and you have a great attitude, that will come with you and people will know that. If you're not, that travels even faster usually. So it's it's yeah. always you know making sure that you're paying attention to your surroundings and really just trying to do the best job you possibly can. Yeah, and I, that really uh, triggers a, a quote that I recently heard, which was something along the lines of 95% of the decisions about your career are made without you in the room. So yeah. just be a nice human, right? And it's like, <laughs> this is, a, it, it, you know, it's a nice little summary of kind of exactly what you just described. And it's the, it's the reality of just how life in the professional world works, right? People would want to work with you if it was a great experience, right? And if you pair that on top uh, with, expertise. It just obviously creates opportunities for you to grow that much more quickly. 
Now, I imagine across those three different areas of engineering, working on different vehicles, right, across a period of eight years, as well as your experience in Formula SAE, where you're working with all different aspects of the car, design, engineering, racing, like those are pretty cross-functional teams, right? So you're working and coordinating across a lot of different areas, professions, people. So was that something that really helped you put yourself in a strong position to then move into motorsport as you were coming out of production engineering? Yeah, for sure. I'd say between what was happening, especially with when you get into an integration role like noise and vibration, you really are working with the DREs that are the, the parts that you know you're you have or um, the suppliers because we would often be working with suppliers to help them fix an issue on their part with the DREs, you know, as part of the discussion. You're working with the leadership for each vehicle team, the chief engineer. You know, mm-hmm. who usually people will find an issue and say, we need this fixed. Or you're saying, I found an issue. I think you should fix it. And because fix it means spend money, right? That's usually yeah. how that works. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's you, you have a lot of different entities that are involved in this. And, you know, we all have the same mission to make the best possible product, but there's constraints that each of us have that are slightly different. And that's where the good conflict comes from, right? Like the people that are in charge of the budget have a very strict budget constraint for what we can and cannot do. The people that are in charge of making sure we meet our timing, that's a constraint. So it's all like, you know, when you have to do something, you have to make sure that everyone is okay with whatever the change is going to drive, whether that's a little bit more cost, a little bit more time or not. And and working through all of that. So it's a lot of, um, you you know, learning how to sell things with each other and and then just making sure that at the end of the day, you come back to the mission, right? If if everyone's on the mission, how we think we want to get there might differ, but we've all are trying to get to the same place. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, having that skill set really well honed as you then make the transition into motorsports where, I mean, the, the pressure of building a very high quality vehicle that is going to satisfy all the things that are set out for its vision, whether it's fun to drive or whatever other criteria, like that's a really, there's a lot of stakes in, at, at play there as well, right? But, you know, you kind of described it as a two to four year roadmap, right? It's from the time of, of those ideas putting put on paper to when it actually gets in market and you start getting feedback, it's such a long road versus motorsport. It's like, get the race car ready, race it, results, right? Iterate, learn, fix, et cetera. And like, there's a safety aspect also, but then there's also massive brand perception in play too. When any of your race teams are successful and the rest of the world sees that, there's a trickle down effect. There's a whole, you know, there's a halo effect. That means that all GM products are going to be able to perform and and have that DNA trickling through them. So talk a little bit about what the pressure is like when you step into the motorsports world, leading a team, being part of these race programs where the stakes are really significant, right? Money is not infinite. So when something goes wrong, like you said, to fix the problem costs a lot of money and motorsports is expensive to begin with. (laughs) What was that like stepping into that world and into that pressure, you know, and I guess how big of a contrast was it to your experience in Formula SAE, which is really a grassroots amateur version of now doing it in the big leagues? I had the benefit of kind of having a, a, I guess, a a steady roll in for my motorsports career starting on the ATS program was the best thing possible for me because it gave me a very defined space. It was two cars racing one team GM. It was a factory effort. So GM was, you know, very much involved in this, which meant I was involved in it because I was the GM representative. I was able to 
you know, know the team super well, know the, the team manager, his name was Steve Cole, you know, create a nice relationship with him and let him, who was a multi-decade veteran in motorsports, right. teach me the environment that I was coming into. Um, and so that way, the other thing that was nice is while that program, we, we've really looked back on it fondly, I would say that it didn't have quite as much of the exposure as like the Corvette racing program has. So it gave a little bit of a a shelter from being, you know, right up in that public eye in terms of of what was going on as intense as the Corvette racing program has. Of course. So that was nice to kind of ease my way into it. Um, But it it is funny. I was, um, as we were getting ready for Rolex this year, I was talking to my, my husband's a GM engineer as well. And he also, he takes photos for us at the racetrack. So he's, He's engaged in all this. And, um, and I, we were talking about the differences from like when he has something hectic going on at work and, and how he manages. And then, you know, for me, and I said, you know, the biggest difference are when we're both stressed, we have every right to be, and there's real things going on. I was like, but when I fail, I fail publicly. Yeah. So it's, it's like this to me, it's at the whole nother level of, oh God, like I can't screw this up because I don't want to embarrass the company. I don't want to embarrass myself, yeah. like, you know, those kind of things. So it's, it's always just knowing in the back of your mind that that's going to, that's part of it. But at the same time, I think that's why I love this. I love the yeah. pressure because I mean, you really find out what you're made of in racing. And like you said, the green flag falls when it falls, you don't right. get to change that time. No, when, when you're in production, we have timing. Sometimes it slips. We don't yeah. like it. Sometimes it happens. But like for racing, there's no slipping. It's just it's right. happening when it's happening. So you better be ready. <laughs> no, I, I absolutely love that mentality. It's absolutely will shake out what it is an individual or a team are made of, right? When you have to be ready for when the green flag falls and then also make it through the race one way or the other, right? And and and, and where you finish is where you finish. And I have to imagine though, because this is such a passion infused space, right? If you didn't love it, like why would you deal with all this pressure and, and the travel associated and the stress, long hours that I'm assuming come with it? You know, there's got to be an enormous amount of pride though when the team performs well or wins or whatever the case is, because you know that you had such a huge impact on that. That's got to keep you going through all of the challenging stuff. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, and the coolest thing for me was I had I had the opportunity when I became the sports car racing program manager to start having people directly report to me. Right. Prior to that, you know, I, I had many people I worked with and was keeping an eye on and making sure, but no one was my direct report. Now I have 11. That happened in like the span of eight months or something crazy. Yeah. Um, and I, I thought I knew pride until I started seeing my people get out there and just kill it. Like just... Yeah. I mean, blow things away. And that, wow, that was when I really was like, hey, that's cool. We did this. You did this. Like you, like that, that's pride. And that feeling every time I'm having a bad day, if I get to talk to one of my employees and just hear about how things are going, that immediately takes all the blues or whatever I'm dealing with and puts it aside. I absolutely adore all of my people. And just because the passion they bring and, and it's yeah. just, but yeah, but it, it comes back to that pride, right? I am so proud of them and everything we've accomplished. <laughs> That's very cool. Now I, I have to ask you also on the like topic of like pride and, and then the connective tissue with the kind of the passion for, I guess also GM and the cars and the nameplates, right? Like obviously even the way that you talk about the Corvette as a Corvette owner, like you love the vehicle, right? And then you oh, yeah. the Camaro. And I have to think that like, 
you know, you have like the, the race cars, like for example, the, the Cadillac LMDH and then any other sort of kind of open wheel racing once you get up there, you know, but they don't look like real cars, right? They're like spaceships with wheels. But when you see that Camaro silhouette or the Corvette silhouette with that connective tissue to the product that everyone else buys, especially like, you know, in like IMSA racing or any of these types of racing where you see, you know, a Camaro amidst like McLarens, Ferraris, Lamborghinis racing past placing him well and performing well like does that elevate that kind of connection and and kind of satisfaction a little bit more even than kind of like the more purebred race cars oh yeah sports car racing is my favorite hands down um and i like it because of that i always was fascinated like the the reason i like racing is because of the technology and the vehicles i love the people i work with i love our drivers but I watch racing to see what the car's doing. Yeah. And then and then now that I know the people behind the wheel, you can kind of see their little personalities come out as well. But it's it's definitely that that is what gets me excited. And the connection back to what's sitting in your driveway is so cool, especially knowing, you know, as we are working on racing and, and developing the cars, we are feeding those learnings right back to production. So even exactly. our Cadillac, which I agree does look like a spaceship in many <laughs> ways, um, we still fed a bunch of aerodynamic learnings of course and you know mass optimization things like that went right back to production so we are making everything better um with different features of the car it's just not a you know if you set it next to a a ct5 blackwing clearly one's a prototype race car and one's a sedan but but, you know they they complement each other and what we've learned in the racing and be able to feed back to it so that's that's why I love sports car racing is the connection with the cars. Um, you can see some phenomenal racing in the other series that we play in, and you've got some really cool personalities in there from different people involved. But endurance racing and sports car racing is where it's at, at least for me. That's my opinion. <laughs> oh, I love it. And and I particularly am partial to it as well because of the fact that uh, it does look and feel like the cars you can actually get behind the wheel of on the road when you own them, right? And so – that to me, I think it's kind of like the the perfect mix when any manufacturer is able to have a public facing com- like uh, commercial car, right? That you can purchase that is also on a racetrack racing somewhere because then you just know like my car can do that, and that's a really satisfying thing for a product, like as like a product placement, product strategy um, uh, approach, right? To know that my, my vehicle has the same DNA as that is. For me, as like a, an automotive enthusiast, is a really satisfying thing. Um, you know, it's no different than, for example, if you play sports and you've got like the soccer cleats or basketball shoes of like a, you know, a LeBron James or whomever. It's like maybe I could do what he could do, even if it's a <laughs> fraction of a percent, right? I can channel his spirit through the shoes. So there's an element of that, right? Now I want to ask a little bit though, because obviously Formula SAE, you're di- you're designing the vehicles, you're racing the vehicles. They're complex just because of the nature of it being a race car, but then race cars on this level, right? I have to imagine the complexity is different. And and just like, how is that being able to know kind of where you started out and now seeing the complexity of the technology and the, the vehicles now, it must be mind blowing for you having gone on that journey and seeing where it is now. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, we always laugh. We said, you know, professional racing is formula SAE on a significantly bigger budget, but it's not quite that right. There's a little bit more to it than that, but yeah, it's the race cars are beasts. I I mean, and especially as we're getting into this new world where we're incorporating the hybrid technology into the Cadillac program that has added a layer of complexity that is incredible, but 
it's really something that has been fascinating to me because as I was building that in my team, you know, did a lot of interviewing, talked to a lot of people that were interested in getting involved in racing. And so many people said they're paying attention because they're seeing the future here and they want to be a part wow. of this new technology because it's a new challenge. Right. So what I'm liking about this is it's allowed us the opportunity to grow who's involved in racing. And we're getting people that maybe never would have thought to apply to be a part of racing, but have really good, strong engineering background and good skill sets they can bring. Now that all of a sudden they're interested and they want to be a part of this story. Um, so it's allowed us to diversify a little bit, you know, who's working on this stuff. And I think really that's how we're taking the next step into this next technology and how racing is going to continue to grow and support production is as we get into this new uh, power unit technology on the electric side, um, not full electric yet for endurance racing. We're not ready for that one, but you know, having to incorporate that electric technology is awesome. And then even the the Corvette does not have a hybrid in it, but what we're doing, pushing the limits with the mass optimization we do on that car, how we're trying, you know, learning about the tires, learning about, you know, some things as simple as the camera in it, the rear view camera, it's an actual camera, yeah. right? How can that technology get better? So all of that stuff is is really, um, it, it, you know, it's it's moving us into this new world, and we're not sitting still and doing the same thing for year on year end. We're constantly right. learning, constantly growing, and getting better, which is why it's so exciting to be in. Yeah, you're absolutely at the bleeding edge of innovation, right? Which is very cool, and I can imagine that that would really attract a very diverse base of, of people wanting to be involved and contribute to that innovation and the progression of the entire automotive industry through that. I wonder though, do you find that with this kind of scaling technology, with it being a kind of a glimpse into the future of what's going to be in, in, in automotive industry altogether, not just in motorsports, do you think that that also has a trickle effect or halo effect on the diversity of for example, people who are becoming motorsports fans today, because obviously motorsports in general has exploded over the last couple of years. There's a number of different things contributing to that. But do you think that this as a factor also similarly to how it affects who comes into work in the space, who consumes the sport as well? I think it does. Um, I will say, I think one of the big contributors to the growth in motorsports, as as crazy as this going to sound, was COVID. Um, ah. And it's, I mean, hear me out. It, the when we all were trapped at home, we were looking for things to be a part of. And racing was one of the few sports that is outside in a huge space. So everyone can be separated away from each other. And yeah, in the paddock, we were a little bit close, but we all had the proper gear on and everything. So we were able to still race, you know, when Uh. you couldn't go into a stadium and watch football, you couldn't go see a basketball game. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't do that. So it gave people something new and fresh to be able to watch while we were in our homes. And then, um, coincidentally, I think it just worked out that the uh, drive to survive that Formula One did yeah, hit right when everybody was craving content and looking for of something course. to watch and be a part of. So it kind of complemented that we were still racing and then there was some something else to get people interested. So I think that helped. But to me, the next step was then saying, OK, now that you we've got your attention, check out what we're doing here. Yeah. Check out our new cars. Look at this new technology we're playing with. And and I think it very much is grabbing people's interest. And, you know, it's like, okay, this isn't just what maybe people thought of as the old racing that we used to do 20 years ago. This is high, super, you know, high technical, cutting edge technology. I don't know how many more ways I can say the word technical or technology, but, you know, it's like yeah. getting into that kind of stuff. And it, it's um, for those that are geeky about that, 
it's a neat thing to dig into to see what we're up to and how we deal with the regulations and all that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And that is such an interesting thing, the way that that shook out, right? And and anyone, especially in North American audience that might be listening to this, there were moments in COVID where probably everyone in North America were watching the exact same content, right? Whether mm-hmm. it was the Michael Jordan documentary or the explosion of Drive to Survive, like you said, and then you're right. Motorsports was able to largely continue, right? Because the athletes were safe in their cars separated from each other, right? There's, you know, you didn't have to have fans because all of it would be televised anyways. And you could argue that most motorsports are slightly easier to consume through a TV than sitting in a paddock of one or on a grandstand of one quarter anyways of a track. But yeah, I can absolutely see that. And I wonder what your thoughts are on this, because I've always thought that uh, when it comes to like motorsports, if the average human could just get butt in seat of even like a low level sports car and feel how violent the experience is of going around a racetrack at like race driver pace, then they would just have an appreciation that they might be lacking if they're not terribly interested in cars and understand like, this is a crazy sport. It is a sport. These guys are athletes. These women are athletes who are driving these cars and they're undergoing incredible forces on their bodies and mastering these machines. Like there's no way it's not. And I wonder if there's a way, there's got to be a way we got to get people to experience those forces. And I think you would totally unlock like a new, um, a new audience of fans. That said, I'm very curious because obviously you've had a lot of success progressing through, you know, engineering roles and then translating that into a career in motorsports. Obviously, progressing in motorsports, I have to think that a lot of that has to do with the success of the teams that you're leading, right? And success is very you know, for lack of a better term, black and white in in a sport where it's either you're winning or you're not, right? Or you're progressing or you're not. And so um, talk a little bit about kind of what progression looks like, like, and and, and maybe what your vision for like your next role or opportunity in motorsports at GM is. And do you have a vision for yourself in terms of what's next? It's a really good question. Um, Motorsports at GM is undergoing its own change. Uh, We were structured very differently when I first joined back in 2016. At the end of 2020, we did a complete overhaul for what we were in terms of who was on on the program and how basically what happened is, is we decided to in-house most of the engineering for racing. Prior to that, we had been working with some contractors and some constructors that were handling that for us. And we decided that there was so much opportunity for learning exchange and really feeding back to the company and and not so much the car. We still always had that transfer with the car, but all the other stuff, our simulators, how we're getting ready for you know racing, that technology we have built up in the production side. So we're able to work on production cars in the simulation right. space too. So, I mean, that's the stuff we wanted to make sure we brought back in. And so we went from a group of roughly six individuals plus um, an engine team that was maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 maximum that were supporting racing that were all GM employees to, right. I think there's a hundred and... 40 of us wow. now. Um, and this, this is literally what was, uh, the, what is it? Uh, October one, 2020 is when this change started oh, and then flash so. forward. Here we are. So we have a whole tech center in, in North Carolina that's been stood up in that time period. That's where the majority of, um, those people sit and, and working through all that. So it's, it's a different space at GM now, which means I'm still trying to figure out what does, 
navigating that work. For me, it's been very fortunate that I just happened to be timed well so that I could keep growing my sphere of influence, starting, you know, with ATS into DPI, getting the Camaro and then acquiring Corvette as well. Yeah. Now building up this whole sports car team that is supporting everything. And then it really, it's looking at what are our future products. So we're, we're crazy right now. We just launched the Cadillac, but we still have a ton of work to do. So that's not done by any means. Yeah. We're getting the GT3 car ready. And then in addition to the Corvette GT3, the car, we have to build an entire customer support program that we never had. Right. So, you know, and that's got to be a global thing. So we have to be able to do that in North America, as well as in Europe and in Asia and everywhere these cars can race. Uh, which I think is almost everywhere, but Antarctica. I haven't heard of a series in Antarctica. But I bet you it's coming. Yeah, um, that'd be that'd be pretty wild to watch. But um, so it's you know that is the like growing and figuring out all those challenges is for me my glide path for the next handful of years. We probably won't really have the GT3 program to a point where I could say we're done launching until the end of 2025 at the earliest, uh, just based on all the stuff that we're growing and building with. So. It's, you know, that to me keeps me busy. And those new programs give me the opportunity to keep being challenged. What will be for me the next step is when I feel like I'm no longer being challenged. And I don't know when that'll be. I mean, I I keep telling my boss, I was like, well, you better figure out what the 2025 launch is because at this rate, I got to keep going or I might just drop dead. I'm not sure which one it's going to (laughs) be. We're not as busy as we've been. So um, it's like, you can't just, I can't slow down anymore. We're we're the motivation or the uh, momentum is high. We got to keep going. Um, So, but you know, uh, like at some point, People will start moving around. You, you know, my boss will retire eventually, whenever he feels like it. So I, there could be opportunities for growth there, or there's always greater GM. You know, if I wanted to pursue maybe being a vehicle chief and and help for a production car, or you know, if I really want to set my sights high, I want to try to be a vice president or something along those lines. You know, going back to greater GM and working through and and developing, taking all the skills I got from racing and bringing that back to the company are are options too. So what I'm glad to say is I have paths that I can go down. Do I know which one I want to take right now? No, but I will say I'm extremely content and uh, definitely challenged on my current one. So I'm not too worried about that right now. (laughs) But what I love about what you just described is exactly what everybody in any profession should aspire to do, which is to build up a set of experiences, a set of tentpole moments, achievements, and impacts that you've had that sets you up for N number of different paths. What you just laid out is like four or five different, completely different career journeys that or paths that you could pursue, each one with fertile ground. And I think that that is like a really exciting position to be in where not only are you extremely happy with what you're doing and there's no end in sight right now, but you know that the moment that your mentality around it changes, you've got all these options. That's really empowering. And what that does, and I've heard somebody else articulate it before on this podcast where it, it turns the it, it turns going to work every day into a decision that you're making and saying yes to because you're not doing it because you have to because you know you've got all these options you're doing it because you want to and that totally changes your approach to how hard you can work to your endurance to your commitment to you know how much pride you find to your job I think that's a really powerful position to be in anyone who's listening should really aspire to to achieve the same thing in their role now. The question I have for you from here, and I'm really curious about, is being you know at the tip of the spear, like I said, at the bleeding edge of motorsports, where you've got all this crazy tech, like on, for example, the LMDH Cadillac or you know any of these vehicles. 
you know, if somebody is, for example, a, a data analyst and somebody's like, you know, you need to upskill. It's easy. You find a course on Coursera, you take a master's you know, certificate somewhere, or you learn a new coding language or whatever, and you've now brought in, then you've elevated yourself a little bit as an analyst. But when you're already doing stuff that is like leading edge, total innovation, right? How do you continue to, I guess, challenge yourself to learn something new or expand yourself? Like, what does that look like for somebody in your position? For me, if... If I could just find the hours to even take it back to basics and right. to really get intimate with the technology that's on our cars, that would be cool. I mean, I and I'll be the first to admit, I have incredible people who work for me that have that on lockdown, right? They know what's going on. They've got that, you know, the hybrid system, all that. They know it. So I don't have to, which is yeah. good because, I, you know, the other things that I'm working on. So, like, I would love to be able to maybe get more detailed in with some of that. But really, I think what would benefit my team the most, since I already have people that are our tech leaders there, is the more I can learn about leadership and just, you know, ways to make sure that I'm doing a good job keeping our relationships healthy with our sanctioning bodies, with our other partners, things that we're working with. Um, strategic thinking, you know, where are we taking motorsports? How can motorsports always complement what we're doing in production? And, you know, making sure there's always a value proposition for motorsports so that we can keep going and, and kind of that whole like bigger picture looking ahead type of stuff. So I, I think it's, you know, me trying to learn more about the space in general, you can learn from all different areas. I actually recently went to um, the women in North America motorsports um, conference that they had down in Charlotte last Very year. Cool. And they brought in their keynote speaker was a professional sailor, like rate sail racing, you know, like oh. uh, boat sailing. Um, yeah. I had no idea the similar similarities you can draw between what we do with motor racing with the cars and what they do with sailboat racing. And, you know, even from a technology standpoint, there's still some stuff to learn because of aerodynamics and things along right. those. So just kind of like opening my mind to where can I draw inspiration from outside of motorsports and within motorsports, you know, can I look to see what F1 is doing? Can I get something from there? IndyCar, NASCAR, any of those, yeah. but then yeah, where, where else can we see how they're doing it? Especially as we're changing up, basically the whole auto industry is changing right now, right? We're shifting right. to new power technologies. So what does that mean for racing and what can we learn from outside to make ourselves more efficient and better? And, you know, how can we grow the audience and all those things that we need to keep healthy uh, so it's it's really just kind of trying to expand the horizons and keep learning from that standpoint. Very cool. Um, very cool. I mean, I, I, to, to, to sum all this up, I mean, your career journey has been really, really interesting to explore. I think there are so many rich learnings to kind of take away from this. But more than anything, it just sounds like you've created both, a, you know, a, a legacy for yourself, but also like a path forward that is so exciting with so many different paths. Uh, while enjoying with a ton of passion what you're doing today, which I think you know I aspire to, anyone else in any profession is aspiring to, which is very cool to have been able to explore. And you know, I mentioned to you when we kind of got introduced before we did the actual recording that I had found you through reading an article or an interview about you in Road and Track. I have no doubt that there are more of those in your future, and I look forward <laughs> to reading the next one and maybe having you on in the future again when you're in, the, you're in that next role to have you back on the podcast. So. Laura, this has been great. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been really cool. Thank you for having me. This is awesome. I love your energy. Keep doing what you're doing. Let's help get everybody <laughs> up to speed here. <laughs> I love it. Thank you.